everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a Lunch and Learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Today's topic is Religious Zionism, the State of Israel, and the Holiday of Passover. This is the second of two parts discussing why we attach religious significance to the modern state of Israel. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Okay, so we referred yesterday to, to Israel, modern-day Israel, as Rishit Smichat Gulatenu, as the beginning of the unfolding of our redemption. It's not the redemption itself. It is not the Messiah itself. It is not the ball of the sun upon the horizon coming out of the thickness of the darkness of the night. It's the gradual first rays upon the horizon, right? The, the night doesn't simply go from pitch black to a ball of sun in your face. It develops gradually. And that's the import of one of the sources that we studied yesterday from the, um, it's actually on page three. So let's just run through these sources quickly. Source number one on your handout is the prayer for the, um, for the welfare of the state of Israel, composed by Shai Agnon and Rav Herzog, capturing this idea of the, the beginning of the redemption that Israel, the state of Israel today, is not the Messiah, but it is the beginning of the unfolding of the coming of the Mashiach, and that's the Rav Cook idea. We, we went through source number two, back and forth, longest dialogue in the Torah between God and Moses at the burning bush, why is Moshe so hesitant to accept um, this job, the new gig, to go before Pharaoh and demand the release of the Jewish people? So we said it's not simply because Moses is humble. It's not simply because Moshe thinks someone else could do a better job. It's because Moshe has a sense that with him, this redemption is going to take a long time. He's going to, they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they're going to get to Israel, and then they're going to build a temple, but the temple will be destroyed, and then there will be an exile, and they'll come back, and, and it's just going to be an up-and-down, roller coaster kind of experience. And Moshe said to God, don't bring the Messiah, don't bring the Jewish people out through me, just bring the Jewish people out through, who else? Oh, pancakes. I want to thank my son Ezra. Wave, Ezra. He brought me for my lunch. These are kosher for Pesach pancakes. As you can see, they contain chocolate chips. Daniela Friedman, welcome. Um, they're a little cold, but I appreciate you trekking up here for them. If you want to stay here and continue to learn, unless you have other learning to do. All right, take care. Ezra, thanks, buddy. I made a, bl- a bracha on this already. You guys are so judgy, because you saw me take a bite without making a bracha. I made the blessing downstairs before I came here, okay? So this is my lunch. Basically, it's breakfast. All right, so... God, Moshe is telling God, send Eliyahu, and don't give me this up and down kind of roller coaster redemption from Egypt and ultimately into the land of Israel. Just give me a smooth, straight redemption. Send Elijah the prophet right here and right now. But God doesn't want that. And that's why we have all these references on Passover to Joseph. What was the relationship between Joseph and Zionism and the Passover story? So we talked about a few things. Uh, the reason we have four cups of wine is not only because of the four expressions of redemption mentioned in the Torah, but also because the word kos, which means cup, it was mentioned four times in relation to the story of Joseph when he gets thrown into the pit in jail in Egypt and starts interpreting Pharaoh's wine steward's dream. Rachel Leonard from Paris, welcome. 
And uh, that was one reference. Another reference to Joseph is the Sochrim Yishma'ilim, the Arab merchants, um, conjuring up the throwing of the bag over your shoulder, the way that uh, our ancestors would carry the meat from the Paschal offering to their home to be eaten on the night of Passover. And we were referencing the Socharim Yishma'ilim, the Arab merchants, again, to remember how Joseph was sold into slavery by a group of Arab merchants. If you remember the movie, the Broadway show, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, that was the hairy band of Ishmaelites. I remember that scene. Best scene in that movie was when Elvis came out and played Pharaoh. Hey, 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 Joseph, won't you tell the Pharaoh? You know, I don't know. All right, you see the movie. Donny Osmond plays, plays uh, Pharaoh. Oh, no, he plays Joseph. Anyway, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer is the other source, source number five on the bottom, that uh, Moshe was really asking for a smoother and straightforward kind of redemption, not a Joseph, if you will, type of redemption, up and down roller coaster, because Joseph represents more than any other biblical personality, the ups and downs of life. First, he's the favorite child of his beloved father, Jacob, and then he's thrown in the pit by his brothers, and then he's on top of the household in, in the house of Potiphar, and then she throws him in jail, then he gets fetched from jail, becomes the viceroy de Paro, he, up and down, and that's kind of Jewish history. This is a suggestion an idea uh, offered by my teacher and mentor, Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter. Rabbi J. J. Schachter suggested that that is why Joseph gets referenced in the Passover uh, Seder so much, and the dipping also. We do a lot of dipping on the night of Passover. We dip the mar into the charosis, and we dip the egg into the salt water because Joseph's coat was dipped in the blood as well. And all of this is supposed to conjure up an up-and-down kind of redemption, not a smooth, straightforward one. That's the kind of redemption God wanted us to have. But here's the good news. We need to look at events going on in the world and say, what is this? And the event of 1948, the Rav Cook and his followers, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who took over the mantle of leadership from his beloved father, expanded upon this idea even more that what happened in 1948 was not simply another nation forming into a state, into a sovereign political entity we call a state with a government and an army, but this was the atchalta de geula, they call it, the beginning of the redemption. Okay, now that is a very messianic approach to religious Zionism, to say essentially that the Messiah has not come, but the reason we attach religious significance to the modern state of Israel is not simply because it's a safe haven to save Jews, but because it's the beginning of the Mashiach. And that was a uniquely Rav Kook kind of messianic approach to modern day religious Zionism. I wanna share with you another approach, a whole other part of the religious Zionist camp that does not necessarily believe that Israel today is the beginning of the messianic redemption, but does attribute great or attach as least as much religious significance to the state of Israel. And the greatest proponent of this approach I mentioned yesterday, this is one I want to focus on with you today, is Rav Salvechik. Rabbi Joseph B. Salvechik, by the way, uh, just had his yard site anniversary of his passing, 27 years, passed away in Cholomoed, and he felt very strongly that the state of Israel was the ultimate expression of God's hand in modern times, what I would call in Hebrew, Yad Hashem, the hand of God, if you will. The Rav was so passionate about his belief 
that Israel, even though it's a secular state, and even though the people who formed the state of Israel were not religionists, they weren't people trying to promote Judaism, they were simply trying to save Jews, right, from the concentration camps, from Hitler, from persecution in the world. By the way, quick commercial, Monday night, uh, I will be having the great, great honor of interviewing one of the most extraordinary survivors of our generation, and that is Dr. Moshe Avital, who survived Auschwitz. It's Yom HaShoah Monday night, and I hope you will join us here on Facebook Live at 8 o'clock for my interview with Dr. Moshe Avital. He has dedicated his entire life to Jewish education uh, and is a real scholar, but we're going to talk to him specifically about how he survived uh, Auschwitz and also if he could give us some, some good um, advice from someone who's been through a lot worse than what we're going through now, as awful as Corona is, and unfortunately is people are dying from this, so it's a very serious situation. I'm not trying to downplay it at all, but compared to someone who survived the camps, like Dr. Avital did, I think it'd be good to get some advice and guidance from him, but we're gonna focus mostly on how he survived as well. So that'll be Monday night here. So if Salvechik felt so strongly that the state of Israel was the ultimate expression of God's hand in modern times, and the Rav was so passionate about his belief that Israel was invested with religious significance. He was so uh, passionate about this that he broke with the tradition of his own father and his own grandfather and his entire family and some of the greatest rabbinic colleagues of his generation over this issue. Of Salvechik's family, specifically his father, Moshe Salvechik, his grandfather, Rav Chaim Salvechik, were huge rabbinic figures in pre-war Europe and as well as many of the other greats of the generation, they believed that the land of Israel, of course, is invested with holiness and sanctity, and that's why you'll have a lot of people who are not Zionists who will go and live in Israel. Um, they may not serve in the army because they don't uh, attach um, much significance to the state itself, but they believe the land has holiness, and therefore there's still a mitzvah to live in Israel, but that's the land. When it came to the state, of Salvechik's father and grandfather and a lot of his rabbinic colleagues had a very, very different attitude. Whether it was because those who established the state were not religious and were not creating a halachic state, they were creating a Jewish state simply because Jews were running it and Jews were in it, but it, wasn't, it didn't have a character of being Jewish because it was not following Torah law. It's following a regular secular law technically British common law, like the United States does. And, or whether it was the belief that creating a state in Israel without the Mashiach was presumptuous. The Orthodox rabbinic establishment looked askance at the creation of the Jewish state. And I know that sounds crazy. How could anyone who's Orthodox, who's very religious, look negatively upon the creation of a Jewish state? And they argue that if Israel was really the beginning of some kind of messianic redemption, then the creation of the Jewish state needed to be part of a tshuva movement, a part of a spiritual return of the Jewish people, not just to the land of our forefathers, but to the religion and to the faith of our forefathers, a movement to return not only to Zion, but also to Torah. And that certainly was not part of the secular Zionist agenda. The secular Zionist agenda was pretty straightforward, and that was to create an independent sovereign state in Israel. And you know that, I mean, there were different camps, of course. You can study 
different parts of modern day Israeli history, the Jabotinsky's and the this and the different approaches, but some were very, very uh, secular in their outlook, so much so that some early Zionists were looking at places like Uganda to create the Jewish state. Why does it have to be in Israel? If it's just a place for Jews to be so that we can deal with anti-Semitism and, and just have our own place, why does it have to be in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the, now, that, that was a very extreme form of secular Zionism. There were other forms of Zionism that were not religious that didn't go to that extreme and believed, listen, historically, this is where we come from. This is where we should be. I'm not interested in having the Torah as the legal system, but at least we should be in the land of our forefathers. And it was really over this issue that Rav Soloveitchik left the Aguda. The Aguda was the most uh, prestigious rabbinic association of his generation. And he, and he joined the Mizrahi movement, which is basically the modern Orthodox association that was Zionist in its orientation. And Rav Soloveitchik wrote a whole essay, called, which I'm going to run through a bit with you in a moment, called Kol Dodido Fake, Behold My Beloved is Knocking, as an explanation as to why he can no longer remain in the same philosophical camp with the Aguda, despite the fact that his own family and his closest rabbinic colleagues were in that group. And you should just know that he was persona non grata the rest of his life when he pulled out of the Aguda over this. And, and, and it caused him a lot of pain because Rav Salvechik was arguably the greatest Torah luminary in the last hundred years, at least. And for him to do something as divisive in their minds, as to pull out of that rabbinic association, he must have felt very, very strongly about the state of Israel. And he threw himself into the Mizrahi, religious Zionist, modern Orthodox world and led it for many, many years until his passing 27 years ago. Take a look at source number seven. Um, source number seven, it's on page three of the handout. Now, before you look, actually, I'm gonna give you a little background. The Rav, <coughs> Rav Salvatric, you've heard me speak about him many, many times. Um, he was off the charts brilliant, had a PhD, in uh, epistemology from the University of Berlin, was a Talmudic genius and mastered many tractates of the Talmud and brought his grandfather, Rav Chaim Salvechik's approach to understanding Talmud to the United States, where he ordained over 2,000 students at Yeshiva University. My first year studying at Yeshiva University was unfortunately the last year Rabbi Salvechik taught, so I missed him. I was nowhere intellectually where I would need to be to be in his classroom, so I never even met him, unfortunately. But all my teachers were his students, are his, yes, were his students. And, um, you know, for those of you who know me, you know that I'm infatuated with his writings and his teachings. And I want to share, just for the next, just for today, I want to share Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach to religious Zionism, which was not messianic, it was different from Rav Kook. He had a lot of respect for Rav Kook, but he wasn't a messianist as much. He believed in the coming of the Mashiach, that's a basic Jewish concept and belief, but he didn't really know, he couldn't really say with any level of certainty that the creation of the state of Israel in 1948, oh, that's the beginning of the Mashiach. He says, I don't know, I'm not a prophet, how am I supposed to really know, but I can tell you one thing. It's God in history taking us out 
after the Holocaust. That is something we have to recognize, and that's something we have to support, even if the leaders of that movement are not observant religious themselves and are not trying to create some kind of spiritual return through their, their Zionism. This light is just super bright on me. Let me see if I could darken it a bit, if you don't mind. Hang on, don't go anywhere. Okay. Yeah, that's a little, little better. Okay, so um, so Rav Salvatrix says something very, very powerful. Um, he couches this article, and we're just going to run through a, br- a brief, brief synopsis of it, um, called The Six Knocks of Religious Zionist Opportunity. And he couches this article in, and frames it within the story of King Solomon's Song of Songs, Shira Shira. It's another relevant point to why I'm teaching this now in Passover. We read Shir Hashirim actually on the first days of the holiday. Um, if we would have been in synagogue, it would have been read publicly. But um, uh, we're not getting together in synagogue, unfortunately. Anyway, King Solomon wrote this beautiful book of poetry depicting the love relationship between God and the Jewish people. And he used as a metaphor a man and a woman. And I want to set this up for you. It's really interesting. He talks about this passionate love between this couple. Very romantic, and they unfortunately have a terrible falling out. Somehow the trust is broken between this couple who were once very much in love, and they break up. And you have this scene in the Shira Shirim where the man is knocking on the door. And he's knocking on the door, and he's basically begging his girlfriends, his past, his lover, to be allowed back in, to have another chance with her. She's lying on the bed and she's crying. She's so beside herself. She's so upset about the way things ended up. And she's so hurt. The trust was broken and she's lying there crying. And um, he's knocking on the door, begging for another chance. And the, and, and the Shira Shirim in, in the book of Song of Songs, Solomon says, Kol do fake, behold my beloved is knocking. And she's like yelling at him, go away. I'm already undressed. I'm already in bed. I'm moving on from this relationship. And he's begging for another chance. And, the, and, and as it says, Shira Shira, as King Solomon wrote so beautifully, my beloved, my beloved is knocking. And then he gives up after a while. And he leaves. And then she finally comes to her senses. And she jumps out of bed and she opens up the door and, she, and he's nowhere to be found. And she starts running through the streets. And she starts talking to strangers like a crazy woman. Have you seen my lover? Have you seen my lover? Do you know where my lover is? And Rav Salvechik takes this image from Shira Shira. And he explains that essentially after the Shoah, the Jewish people were like the woman crying on their bed and felt completely abandoned after six million lives were taken. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is knocking on the door. God is like the man knocking on the door. Behold, my beloved is knocking. And the Jewish people are like the woman lying in the bed crying. I'm already undressed. I'm going to sleep. I'm moving on from this. And God is knocking. And Rav Salvechik says that through 
the creation of the state of Israel. This was God's knocking on the door of the Jewish people, giving us another chance at another relationship with Hashem. And we are lying on the bed. Will we get up from the bed? Will we get over the hurt and the pain and come back to Hashem and open up that door and build the state and build the future of the Jewish people with Hashem in the land of Israel? It's so powerful, it's so beautiful. And he goes through six knocks of religious Zionist opportunity, he says, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that God knocked on the door of the Jewish people, he says, in six different ways. And I want to run through them with you. They're on source number seven on page three. Six knocks of religious Zionist opportunity. And um, it's just powerful. I want to thank my cousin Moshe Sakalo, who uh, made this synopsis. If you want to read it in its original, and I suggest you do that, the book is called Fate and Destiny by Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Fate and Destiny. And it's been translated into English. It was written originally in Hebrew. Listen to the first knock. God's knocking on our door in six ways. Number one, read with me. We're on page three of the handout that we posted. First, the knock of opportunity was heard in the political arena. No one can deny that from the standpoint of international relations, the establishment of the state of Israel, just politically, was almost supernatural. Now, I've done a lot of reading and work on this myself. The Rav is, 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 is telling us exactly what happened. We think after the Shoah, how could the world not vote in favor of partition, to partition the Jewish, uh, you know, um, Palestine into a Jewish area, into an Arab area, it wasn't so simple. The State Department, which was much more Arab-leaning at the time, and I think continues to be on some level, was pressuring the president to not vote in favor of partition Harry Truman at the time. Harry Truman was pretty close to being an anti-Semite himself. There's a crazy, crazy story about his, um, his, uh, his partner. He used to have a store in Kansas City where he was from, a Jewish guy by the name of Eddie Jacobson was called upon by the Zionist leadership to get to Harry Truman to try to convince him to vote in favor of partition. Whole crazy story. And it wasn't so simple that the United States was going to vote in favor. Now they did. But what was even more miraculous, what was even more miraculous was that the Soviet Union, Stalin, who ruthlessly persecuted Jews for decades in the former Soviet Union, voted in favor of partition. Now, I'm sure there were political reasons. They didn't do this because they loved Jews. But that brought along with them the whole, the entire Soviet bloc, which was very important to get a majority vote in the General Assembly in voting in favor of partition. So the first knock on the door, says Rabbi Salvechik, was the political knock in the United Nations. The second, he says, was the battles. Look at number two. The knocking of the beloved could also be heard on the battlefield. The small Israeli defense forces defeated the mighty armies of the Arab countries. The miracle of the many in the hands of the few took place before our very eyes. I mean, do you know who the original fighting force for the, for the IDF, before there was an IDF, it was called the Haganah, and there were some splinter groups, some more underground groups like um, the Irgun and the Palmach and the, um, the, the Lechi, all different groups. Some were working together, some were not. Very complicated how to deal with the British. But it was an unbelievable thing that fewer than 55,000, basically a ragged band of Holocaust survivors, okay? And there were others that were trained, believe it or not, by the British 
during the Second World War to fight, faced the combined militias of six Arab armies. And the day after, the day after the United Nations voted in favor of partition, guess what happened? They all attacked Israel. And Israel, um, with this fledgling army, basically held out against these six Arab countries for a month until the United Nations was able to actually enforce uh, some kind of ceasefire. And we had for ourselves a state. It was a tiny state, but we had it. So the second knocking could be heard on the battlefield. The miracle of the many in the hands of the few, that's a reference from the Al-Hanisim prayer that we say on Hanukkah, because the last time that we had such an upset of where a small group of Jews were successful against a much greater force in Israel was the Hanukkah story, the Maccabees. Third, the beloved began to knock as well on the door of the theological tent. And it may be very well that this is the strongest knock of all. All the claims of Christian theologians that God deprived the Jewish people of its rights in the land of Israel and that all the biblical promises regarding Zion and Jerusalem refer allegorically to Christianity and the Christian church have been publicly refuted by the establishment of the state of Israel. Which is so interesting because what happened? The Jews were guilty of this thing called deicide, classically. Told John Paul, told Pope Pon, Paul, John Paul II, uh, who got rid of that theological tendon of Christianity. Every time the Jewish people found themselves the subject of anti-Semitism, the church was able to say, you see, that's what happens because you killed our God. You're guilty of deicide. And when the state of Israel was created, it threw the church and its theology of deicide that we would be punished and punished in, the, in exile for rejecting their God, for somehow being responsible for the death of their God, of Jesus. And uh, when the state of Israel was created, it, it threw that particular uh, tenant of Christian theology into, into disarray. Fourth, and this is my favorite, the fourth one. Fourth, the beloved is knocking in the hearts of the perplexed and assimilated youth. The era of self-concealment, what we call in Hebrew, hester panim, God hiding his face, which is the way a lot of Jewish theologians look at what happened in the Holocaust. That God turned away from the Jewish people and let the forces of nature or the evil forces of the world, the Nazis, have their way. That this era of self-concealment in the beginning of the 1940s resulted in great confusion amongst the Jewish people, of course. How many people were turned off from Judaism because of the Holocaust? And in particular amongst the Jewish youth, buried hidden thoughts and paradoxical reflections emerge from the depths of the soul of even the most avowed assimilationists. And once a Jew begins to think and contemplate, once his sleep is disturbed, who knows where his thoughts will take him? What form of expression his doubts and queries will assume? You know what happened when the state of Israel was created? And what's continued to happen since, particularly since 1967, Six Day War and that great miracle, is that Jewish people who were turned off to Judaism start looking the other way and saying, wait, what's going on here? We're back. God wants us back. The Jewish people are back in Israel. You can't deny when you go to Israel today how vibrant of a country how it continues to be built and to develop itself and the youth and the vibrancy and the energy 
the technology, the innovation that comes from this tiny little state surrounded by enemies all over. What is going on? It's inspirational. It is no doubt that birthright, the greatest initiative in Jewish outreach, just in terms of sheer numbers, keeps bringing people to Israel. And it has this almost magical impact and effect on people. All right, for how long will that one 10-day trip last? Okay, some people can get a little cynical. But we're not bringing people to Kansas City to turn them on to Judaism. I'm in this beautiful Hunter Mountain. It's very, very nice here. It's lovely. But it ain't Jerusalem. The hills are beautiful, but it's not Sfat. And <clears throat> coming back to Israel and having a state, it did something. I would say as an outreach professional, if you will, that Israel is the most important weapon, if you will, to help combat assimilation and intermarriage. Israel is so powerful. And when Israel was created, it started turning back on a lot of the young people who were turned off to Judaism after the Holocaust. And that was a knock on the door, says Rabbi Soloveitchik. Five, the fifth knock of the beloved, perhaps the most important of all, for the first time in the history of our exile, divine providence has surprised their enemies with a sensational discovery that Jewish blood is not free for the taking. It's not Hefker. I always like to share this story. And if you've ever heard me share this before, well, it's, 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 it's worth repeating. I will never forget meeting one particular survivor, Henry Moskowitz of blessed memory. He was a supporter of MGE. I used to go to him for help, for financial support for the organization. And um, he used to learn every day Talmud at the Westside Kolo. He was 102 when he died, just a few years ago. I went to see him when he was 96. Um, and he told me I should come to his apartment and he'll give me a check for MGE. And I was waiting in his living room. He was an amazing philanthropist, became very, very successful in real estate. He came to this country with nothing. He was one of these survivors with nothing. He lost a wife and a child in the Shoah and the Holocaust. And he came here, literally couldn't speak the language, didn't have a penny in his pocket. And he became a huge real estate mogul, developed a beautiful family, ended up becoming a, a very uh, big uh, giver to the Jewish community on many, many levels. And anyway, I was sitting in his living room waiting for him to come in. He was older. And the New York Times, he had a copy of the Times on the coffee table. So I picked up the Times. And it was a, in the middle of the second intifada. It was a long time ago. I just want to get my computer, see what time it is. Hang on. And on the front cover of the New York Times of that day was a terrible, terrible picture of, of a wrangled bus that had just been blown up in Israel. And it was upsetting to read this article about, I think, like 11 Jews that were killed in that terrible terrorist attack. And when Mr. Moskowitz came out of his bedroom to see me, he saw on my face I was all upset. And he said to me in his heavy Polish accent, he says, what's the matter? 
And I showed him the article and he looked at the article. He read the caption, he saw. He handed me back the paper and he said, Rabbi, we never had it so good. I said, Mr. Moskowitz, we never had it so good. What are you talking about? There were 11 Jews killed today in Israel. He says, I know, that's terrible. He says, but we never had it so good because today we have a government and today we have an army and today we can fight back. And that was the first time that I finally understood what Israel means to people who live through the Shoah. Because if you were stopped on a street in Europe and you were beaten up because you were a Jew, there was no recourse. There was nobody to tell. There was no police to go to. There was no ramifications for anti-Semitism for centuries in Europe. In Israel, there's still anti-Semitism going on, and Israel is still the object of much hate in the world. But today we have a government. Today we have a state. Today we can do something about it. And uh, I always think about this story whenever I, th whenever I read about the fifth knock. Of Salvechik is saying the fifth knock of God on the door of the Jewish people. So for the first time that Jewish blood is not hefker. You know what hefker means? It's ownerless. We made our chametz before Passover ownerless, like the dust of the earth. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it belongs to anyone. It's not mine. I have no responsibility. That's the way Jewish blood in the streets of Europe was for centuries. It was hefker. It was ownerless. It's no longer ownerless. Because when a Jew is attacked anywhere in the world, the state of Israel is there. And we, even in the diaspora, can walk with our kippot, we can walk with our yarmulkes, and we could, with our, our head held high because there's a government, there's an army, there's a state. Let's go to the sixth knock. The sixth knock, which we must not ignore, was heard when the gates of the land were opened. A Jew who flees from a hostile country now knows that he can find a secure refuge in the land of his ancestors. Now that the era of divine self-concealment is over, Jews who have been uprooted from their homes can find lodging in the Holy Land. That's unbelievable. Today you can just get on a plane. Okay, right now it's not so simple. But generally speaking, you can just go. And Israel, how many Jews has Israel rescued from, from despair all over the world? Over a million Jews from the former Soviet Union are today living in Israel. They were living in hiding having to hide their religious and Jewish identity in the former Soviet Union. There are over 100,000 Ethiopian Jews living in Israel today in safety who were living a very precarious and dangerous life wherever they lived in Ethiopia. Jews from all of these Arab countries, from Egypt and from Morocco, from Tunisia, from Algeria, from Iraq, from Iran, all over the Middle Eastern world that were, it was dangerous for them to live there. And there are Jews, of course, even from the United States or from France, who might be going for a million and one different reasons to simply live in the land of our forefathers. Israel created a safe haven for Jews. And that, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, is also religiously significant. It was a knock on the door to live a dignified life where you don't have to cower and be afraid of the government of the country in which you live. And of course, we in the United States, Jews living in America, we live a very, very privileged life and we should feel very 
very um, grateful that we live in a country which accepts us, but we should never fool ourselves into thinking that the ultimate safety and security for the Jew could be found anywhere other than the land of Israel. Because as much as we have freedom and openness in America, and God bless America, God bless how open things are and accepting that America is for Jews. It's not the same as living in Israel. You know, my grandmother, blessed memory, was from Germany, my mother's mother. Until her dying day, she would never say anything bad about the German people. She would say negative things about Hitler and about the brown shirts, you know, the Hitler youth. She hated them. But it was too difficult for her to say anything negative about the German people because she was a German person and she and her family lived in Germany as her husband's family after whom I'm named and my son Ezra's named, Max, Sean Walter, blessed memory. They lived beautiful lives in Germany, very accepted in society. And then it just turned on a dime and they had to get the heck out and thank God they were able to get out. A lot of their friends didn't get out and they perished in the Holocaust. But when you live in Galut, you live in the exile, even in a open exile, which seems to be very accepted and has institutions of democracy that would seem to prevent a Hitler from arising. There's nothing like Israel in terms of true, true security for the Jew. As much as Israel is the object of such hatred in the Arab world, in parts of the Arab world at least, we have peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt, and we're hopeful that, please God, there'll be more. But when you're in control of your own fate, in control of your own destiny, and that's why Rav Salvechik wrote this book, this treatise, it's called Fate and Destiny, that the Zionists took one very, very important lesson, really important, is that we took our own destiny into our own hands. And in doing so, says Rabbi Salvechik, we don't live a life of fate where things are just happening to us. We live a life of destiny where we are chartering our own course of history. And you can't really do that even living in the United States. You can live as an observant religious Jew and you can live in freedom, democracy, and liberty for all. God bless America and thank God. But you can't really charter your own destiny as a nation living in someone else's country. You can only really do that in Israel. And that's why Israel is so significant and that's the connection to Passover that we've been developing all along. Now, Devra is just asking, what was the third knock? You missed it. So first of all, Devra and anyone else, we posted the handout for today that I've been reading from. I want to make sure that everyone sees the handout. This way you can have it. I mentioned this before. I see my brother is online here. Uh, our cousin Moshe Sokolo, who's a great scholar, actually uh, summarized Rabbi Soloveitchik's six knocks. The third knock, I'll repeat it, was the knock on the theological tent. And it may be, he said, the strongest knock of all. All the claims of Christian theologians that God deprived the Jewish people of its rights in the land of Israel and that all the biblical promises regarding Zion and Jerusalem refer not to the Jewish people but to the new Israel. The Christians were calling themselves the new Israel. That was all thrown into disarray by the creation of the modern state in 1948 because that theological tenet that Christians had for centuries, that the Jew gets punished for killing their God <clears throat> or for at least rejecting their God, 
and therefore all of the anti-Semitism to which Jews have been subject is in a sense deserved and brought upon themselves by this terrible crime against the Christian church of, of DSI, that was all publicly refuted and thrown into disarray by the creation of the state of Israel. And thank God for John Paul II. He was a great humanitarian and a great pope because he was, for many reasons, he had a soft spot for Jews, but he also, um, for the Jewish people, but he also was the one to renounce this theological tenet uh, after centuries, which unfortunately inspired a lot of Christian-sponsored anti-Semitism. And Baruch Hashem, thank God, the relations between Jews and Christians have really never been better. Uh, there's still some anti-Semitism in certain parts of the Christian world, and there is, of course, within the, um, uh, the evangelical world, a great messianic kind of fervor to convert the Jew, but we have no better friends uh, today uh, in Israel uh, for the state of Israel than, in my opinion, than so many of the, of, of, of the, uh, um, the Christian um, evangelicals. Uh, who are extraordinarily supportive of the state of Israel and the people of Israel and Jewish people in general. So we're living in really very special times, very, very special times. Um, I'm sorry, why can't you open up the document? That's weird. Okay, but I hope everyone else is able to do that. So that's what I wanted to share with you as we go into the second days of Passover. I wanted to give you some hope and optimism in terms of Israel itself. And I know we can't really travel there right now, but this is an opportunity to become more knowledgeable and learned about Israel. There are two things that happened in modern history. One was the Holocaust and the other one was the creation of the state of Israel. We're going to be commemorating both in the next two weeks. Monday night, I'm going to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Moshe Avital right here on Facebook Live. I've met Dr. Avital. He's an unbelievable personality and a survivor of Auschwitz. And he's going to tell us uh, and share with us his unbelievable story of survival and um, maybe give us some guidance in terms of, not maybe, he said he would, give us some guidance in terms of dealing with corona from the perspective of someone who went through a, something a lot worse. <clears throat> That'll be Monday night. <clears throat> next Wednesday night, if anybody wants to join my Zoom class, my next level class, it's on Zoom. We'll send you the information. It's going to be about Israel because the following week is Yom Atzma'ut. The following week is Israel uh, Independence Day, and we're going to be celebrating that uh, with a lot of teaching and classes and even some singing in honor of Israel and doing whatever we can online to commemorate the Shoah next week, uh, the Holocaust, and then the week after uh, Yom Hatzma'ut, which is extraordinarily important to do. That was one of the other reasons I wanted to start teaching this topic now. I thank you all for listening. I want to mention um, we sent out an email today. Um, let me see if I can get it here with all of the times for uh, the holiday tonight. Um, let me just see if we sent this. Give me one second. Um, what time candle lighting is? I should have come here. Manhattan Jewish experience, here it is. Okay, so candle lighting tonight uh, is at 716. 
And the second days of the Yom Tov begin tonight at 7.16. And uh, also join MGE as we unite by praying on Wednesday and Thursday from 10 to 11. Print out this cheat sheet before Yom Tov. That's awesome. So you can print out this cheat sheet as to how to pray. um, And it gives you all of the prayers that we say tonight and tomorrow. And with the page numbers in the Art Scroll prayer book, and we have one with the Koran prayer book as well, I believe. Um, hold on a minute. Did I just lose my email? Okay, good. So that tonight, we light candle 716. Tomorrow, join us just in spirit as you pray from 10 in the morning to 11 in the morning. You can use the cheat sheet that we sent out in the email. Um, if anybody needs that email, didn't get it, that's watching. Uh, just email me markwilds at gmail, M-A-R-K-W-I-L-D-E-S, and I will send you um, the email. Oh, some other questions. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get to Yisker in a minute. Uh, tomorrow night uh, is the second night of Yom Tif, the second night of the second days of Yom Tif, and candle lighting from an existing flame is at 817. You light from an existing flame at 817. Remember to continue to count the Omer. Today, by the way, is the fifth day of the Omer. Today is the fifth day of the Omer. Continue the count. And then Yom Tov ends on Thursday night at 8.19. Yom Tov ends Thursday night at 8.19. Uh, you can just open up a prayer book and you'll see the Havdalah that you make on Thursday night. You don't use a flame. You just take a cup of wine and make the blessing of, of Hamavdil ben Kodesh Lachol, God who separates the regular from the holiday. Just look at any prayer book. It'll give you the Yom Tov Havdalah. It's like an abridged Havdalah. Um, okay. Uh, a lot of other great stuff going on here. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of classes and stuff we're doing online. But that's basically the schedule for Yom Tov. I want to wish you all a beautiful Yom Tov. Yes, yeah, we say Yisker. For those of you who need to recite the memorial prayer for a loved one, that is on the second day of Yom Tov. So you can light a candle, um, a yardside candle, um, tonight, and it'll last you through. Um, or you can actually light it tomorrow night when you light uh, the candle. You can light a yardside candle from an existing flame. And you can say the Yisker, um, just open up uh, any prayer book, look at the table of contents, Y-I-Z-K-O-R, Yizkor. And you can say that on your own. You do not need to uh, to have a minion to say the Yizkor. You can really do most of the prayers on your own. That's the email we sent out that gives you all the different prayers uh, for the holiday. I'm sorry we can't be with you guys. I will mention also the holiday that ends Thursday night. We're going to be having a class on Friday again. We're back here Friday, guys. I told you, every day of the week except for Shabbat. Friday, there'll be a lunch and learn. Um, and um, Friday, there will be a lunch and learn at 12.30. And there will also be at 6.15 a Kabbalah Shabbat service on Friday night. At 6.15, my son Yosef and I again, we're, we're getting better. We're getting better. Stay with us. And the group keeps growing every week. And um, I want to thank Yosef. Oh, and also Friday morning is going to be doing his meditation at 8.15 and a bunch of other classes online on Friday as well. And Saturday night, we'll be doing a Havdalah online. There'll be no Thursday night Havdalah. That's a very quick bridged Havdalah without a candle um, and all that. Um, 
with, you know, without all the singing and all that fun stuff. But that'll be Saturday night at 8.30 on Saturday night. All right, I can thank you guys for sticking around. I want to wish you all a Chag Sameach, a good Yantif. If anybody has any questions about the holiday, about any questions about how to observe it, just so you know, it's still Passover. We still refrain from eating chametz. And uh, it, it's like a Shabbat tonight and the next two days, except for uh, the ability to carry and to cook if you have an existing flame. Have a Chag Sameach, my friends. Thank you for joining and for listening. Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people continue to live and enjoy the last days of Passover. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.